This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash moment. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. Hi, I'm Elaine Sheldon. And I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And we're the hosts of She Does, a series of audio documentaries that are part biography, part conversation, and completely about women working in media. Every other week, we ask writers, filmmakers, photographers, technologists, among many other creative outlets, what makes them tick. We get personal, because realizing the successful person sitting in front of you was once out of ideas or completely lost. You know, the moments they leave out of their bio. Can be just what you need to lift you up and out of a creative crisis. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, what have you. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is Brian. I realize that in this podcast, I don't say the name of the new book that my guest Derek Haas uh, has written until like 35 minutes in, and I just want to do it right off the top. So his new book is called A Different Lie. It's the fourth book in the Columbus series of mysteries. They're great books, and uh, it comes out today, as does... Uh, Derek's new television show, Chicago Med, premieres tonight, or you can go back and watch it on your DVR or your on-demand system if you're listening to this uh, on Wednesday or Thursday. All right, show starts now. Go by uh, A Different Lie and watch Chicago Med, and here comes Derek Cast. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is the great Derek Haas. Derek is almost not just a Hollywood friend, actually a friend, yes. which is really fun uh, to do. Derek is, along with his partner, Michael Brandt, the executive producer of uh, and creator of Chicago Fire, the executive producer of Chicago PD, and the upcoming Chicago Med, which will be on in a week or two from now, and you should watch that. He's also one of my favorite screenwriters. He and Brandt wrote 310 to Yuma, Wanted, and um, the original picture, The Double Among Others. He is, as well, a novelist. I've read almost all of your books, Derek. Great. I haven't read the new one. Well, why is that? I'm busy. (laughs) I gave it to you way early, Brian. Way early. But I've read the others. That's great. Uh, And um, we were just, as we we started here, I was just saying, because I, I looked to you, as you know, for counsel on this TV show running stuff, and we decided to put our writer's room where editing is. Mm as opposed to putting it where the stages are. Now, you guys, your stages are in Chicago. Right. Our writer's room is in Los Angeles. Our editing is in Los Angeles. Our stages are in Chicago. And is the is the writer's room its own like satellite, or are you with editing? No, it's its own satellite. We try to uh, send the writer of each episode to Chicago to produce their episode. Typically, they'll stay for the first week, be there for the tone meeting, be there for the last production meeting, and then sit on the episode for the first four or five days of shooting. Coming out of features, did it take you a while to adjust to the whole thing of like a concept meeting, a tone meeting? These are things where the writer is able to, I mean, you can explain it, but communicate, right, to the director and everybody else how they see the show in their heads. Exactly, because with television, you've got directors coming in 
who don't know the characters as well as you do. It's way different than feature films. And you're always prepping an episode, you're shooting an episode, you're in post on another episode. And so you've got to train the directors of what your vision is for each um, episode. And so we'll have a tone meeting really the day before we start shooting. And we're going to go through every scene, scene by scene, and tell what we're trying to accomplish in that tone. And sometimes we'll... We'll give the director even ideas of this is how I saw it in my head when I shot it. Now, you can do what you want, but when you want to shoot it, I was really thinking that the camera would be over here and be low and shoot up at the guys as they race towards the camera. But again, do what you want, but that's really what I was thinking. And when you say do what you want, what do you really mean? (laughs) No, generally they get the idea that, oh, that's, you know, I'll be better served if I get that shot in that way. But a lot of times we're really free with the directors too. I think just tonally each scene, you know, this is why we wrote this scene. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And the other thing you can convey to them is sometimes actors have strengths and weaknesses that they'll never know, but we've we've now been watching them for three seasons. So let's play towards that, play away from that, and just give them that insight. It's really fun for us. Was this, this whole idea of becoming... Now, you directed and produced movies. I mean, Michael directed right. and produced movies, but the idea of being a sort of a final word or a final creative word, was that like... I mean, writers always talk about wishing that were the case. Did you find it at all to be a burden or was it only like a a joy for you to be able to do that? No, it was a joy. I think that when we made The Double, which uh, Brant directed and I produced, we were brand new at trying to do an independent movie. We had no idea really what that meant in terms of actual dollars we were going to have to spend. We learned so much over the course of making that movie in terms of if we leave this location, we're not coming back to this location. You will not be able to afford to shoot another scene at this location, so you better get it all done. And when we got to television, actually our budgets on these shows are bigger than what we had to make the movie. And for us, it was a joy because I think we'd worked with so many directors over the years who had pretty much done what they wanted, right? You wouldn't have that tone meeting. It was their tone that you were going to try to service. And a lot of times you're you're just trying to stay on the movie, you know, so you're trying to be a pleaser. You mean trying not to get fired. I want to be language-wise. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, and, and I think Brant and I learned early as writers, we would, we would do our best to not necessarily accommodate, but certainly give in if an argument became a push shove because we figured the longer we could stay on the movie, the more chance we had of the movie being what we had envisioned when we first started writing it. Did it work out that way? It did. I mean, it depends. Like, we, we worked on a movie the second Fast and the Furious. Um, oh, yeah. you have. I mean, you wrote that movie. You have credit on We uh, wrote that, that movie. movie, and we were on the movie from start to finish. It, it subsequently became titled Too Fast, Too Furious. But at the time, it was the Fast and the Furious 2. And Brant and I were on set for the first two and a half months. And then because of the circumstances, we we actually requested, why don't we leave, go back to uh, California for a little bit. I think it was a little because the actors kept wanting to change things. And we thought, if we leave, then the script's locked, right? Right. Then they won't be able to change it. They won't it. be able to change it. That was because, early in your career. Yes. And we were having arguments every morning with the actors about what they should say or what they shouldn't say. And we thought, okay, if we get out of here, then those arguments will go away and they'll just do what we wrote. And 
we regret that to this day that we left Miami and and left the last month and a half of production because there are scenes in there that had we been there, I feel like we could have influenced the way it was. That was a real lesson to us. So stay on the movie as long as you can as a writer. And with TV, it's great because you're the boss and you... You get to do, you know, they do what you, what you say, <laughs> which is nice. But so when you say you took that, that lesson, and even when you say you guys had a strategy together, um, I mean, we've talked about this kind of thing before, but how, how do you codify that stuff for yourself? Like, do you, do you really think about it? Because I, I will say it's always hard for me to accept that you have to, that one has to do that. Like, so I know, I believe, I know you're right. telling the truth. No, you do. So yeah. you, you actually try to, um. Like, think about it strategically also. Absolutely. I, How did I, that start for you? Well, I think it was that movie and, and, and watching the difference between when you're there and still an influence, even if it's a minor influence, even if you're, you know, we got along so well with John Singleton that he looked to us to try to help him. I mean, you talk about tone meetings. We were basically having daily tone meetings. Okay, here's what we're doing on this scene. And I think when we left, the movie suffered. And so, you know, it, it became a thing of Brant and I would look at each other at certain points in every project and say, okay, is it worth it? Is it worth saying, you know what? We, we can't do this. This is going to hurt the movie. So you guys go with God, do it yourselves, and we'll walk. Or is there a way that we can compromise here because the extra four weeks we're going to be on this movie is going to help the overall project. Because seeing a movie afterwards that you felt you could have made better yeah. hurt you. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, it wasn't a business thing because that movie helped you business-wise tremendously. For sure. You're talking about the actual intrinsic quality yeah. of Here the Here we thing. are 10 years later from movies and the movie comes on TV and you see things that you would have changed had you had the opportunity to be there. And maybe all directors do that. Maybe all writers do that. Uh, eventually, but my my thing is stay in the ring and fight as long as you can rather than take my ball and go home, which, you know, is a thing that screenwriters face, which is, you know, this was my baby. Now you're making a movie and you're getting away from my baby. So bye-bye, see you later. And you can do that attitudinally or just, uh, or physically just say, I'm not coming anymore. You guys, good luck. I'm telling you, you'll regret that. I only, Dave and I did it once where we really walked off of the movie. And I don't regret it because <laughs> I, it was so fucked up. <laughs> that, uh, the only thing I regret is like allowing the movie to get made, which well, is another side mean. of it. Like letting the movie get made when I knew it was going to be bad because of the assembled group. I, but do you think had you, had you sucked it up and stayed, had you have eat, swallowed your pride at one point, could you have made it better Along the way, you know what, Brian? We'll never know. We'll never know. Right. But so you decided the way you want to never know is you want to be on the <laughs> side of having hung in. Yeah, exactly. Because then you can't blame. You're, in a way, it, 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 it allows you to know that at least you, you fought for it. Exactly. Exactly. And if it still doesn't go, at least you were in there. At least you were trying. Yeah. But that's the biggest difference between movies and TV is that now it really is. You're, you really are the boss. And we're, we're lucky enough to work on Dick Wolf shows where Dick... Prior to the very first shot, takes all the actors to dinner, and he makes the same speech. I've seen it three times now, which is, we're an on-book show. You're going to get the scripts a week ahead of time, two weeks ahead of time, and you're going to learn your lines. And if you have questions, 
Let's ask those questions right after you get the script. But otherwise, on the day of the shoot, you're going to know your lines. You're going to be generous to your fellow actors. You're going to be prepared, but you're going to do the lines as they're written. And so we never have those arguments that we used to have in movies where an actor will just decide, oh, I'd rather say this or I'd rather play that. In movies, you didn't enjoy those conversations. It depends. Like, if you've got a really talented actor, for sure, I'll take a great idea from anywhere. I don't care if it's the key grip or the, you know, the gaffer hanging the lights. If there's a great idea, for sure, let's incorporate it. And some actors are very smart and know the scenes better than, you know, because now they've made it uh, intrinsic to themselves. So they might know the scene better than even, you know, the director or whoever else. But do I want to have those conversations with somebody who I know doesn't get it, is only worried about how they look or some pride thing that they're, somebody else is stealing the scene? So you know what I'm talking about. Right. No, yeah, the, yeah. The, I haven't. Yeah, that would be maddening. Those are, are um, absolutely no fun. No, before we started uh, Billions, <laughs> I called you a couple times, and one of the things you told me was the thing about getting the script in their hands in advance, and it's yeah. a brilliant thing to do, and we've yeah. done it so far in all the episodes, and it's great, because if someone has a question and they ask you a week before when there's no pressure, you can really absolutely. solve it. Absolutely. As, and then when they get to set, they have an ownership over the whole thing. They've had it, absorbed it, and they're actually, they want to be on book. They've absolutely. Been, they've contributed. And the best is if that, that whole idea of be generous to your other actors, I think that plays a very big part in why we have such great chemistry on this show, on, on our shows, or what I feel is great chemistry. The guys all genuinely like each other. But it's like they're pulling for each other even within the scenes. Yeah. Nobody's worried about somebody else got upstaged or any of that. You can see it on your show on social media. You, right? You can yeah. see I'm saying. You can see it in the way that the actors talk about one another yeah. In public. Part of that, I think, is that we're in Chicago. And it's so all of this cast came together. There are some Chicago actors, but mainly from New York or L.A. And you're on this island. You know, it's us against everyone. And so they've all bonded together. Otherwise, they're not going to have social lives. Whereas I feel like if we shot the show in Los Angeles, they'd all, as soon as you wrap, they're off doing that. I, I wonder thing. if it's also easier for you to have those conversations now. Because ultimately, you are the last word. Whereas right. on a movie set, there's an added fear when you're the screenwriter that if a movie, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if the movie star starts having an idea, you might not be able to stop yeah, it. Yeah, and you might be gone, you know. Well, too. yeah, if you try and, to yeah. stop it, you might be gone. Whereas here, you you know, it's actually like, great, give me whatever ideas you want. Ultimately, you could be like, all right, ultimately, this will be a really bad fire. Right. Right, exactly. Well, and I won't show. write you off. I'll just stick you with. You'll look like uh, the Invisible Man in a hospital bed for the next three. It's weeks. a dangerous job. It's a dangerous job. So, I mean, we don't. We're not very punitive on in terms of storylines because you're really so far out. You know, ahead of, of the game. But there are the occasions where we'll put words into a character's mouth that we really want them to hear as actors, you know. We have a chief character, which is great, on the show. And occasionally, uh, played by Eamon Walker, who's brilliant, and occasionally we'll have the chief say some things to the paramedics and firefighters that we're really wanting to tell the cast. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> yeah. We've done that a couple times. Do you find yourself doing the thing that you'd, you'd heard about, which is when you get pieces of their lives, you find a way to use it in oh, the yeah. shows? Because we do it all the time. Oh, it's the best. That's the best. When And again, we're doing, like, you guys are doing 13 episodes. We're Twelve. doing 
12 episodes. We're doing, twenty. we did 23 last well, year. You're doing 66 episodes and of television doing, exactly. this year. So you're looking for ideas that'll spice up, you know, what you, trying not to repeat yourselves. And last year we had a character who, when we were having the the uh, the dinner, the kickoff dinner, and he looked he looked pretty good. He had come back in shape, and he said, "Oh, I've been doing this thing Zumba." I was like, "What the hell's Zumba?" And he said, uh, "Oh, it's this dance." I said, "Show it to me." So he starts doing this Zumba dance, and we said, "Oh my God, we have to put this into the show." So we did. We got two episodes right. out of Cruz doing Zumba. It was great. That, and when he now, did you tell him ahead of time, or did you just show him the script? No, when the, when he got the script. I mean, we we had hinted that it was coming, but then when we when we showed him the script, he was dying, and it, it ended up being great. I think he's like the Zumba national spokesperson now. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless. It's almost magical. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. And if some other way to pay comes along, we'll support that too. Braintree's fast payouts and continuous support means you'll always be ready, whether you're earning your first dollar or your billion. To check it out for yourself, visit braintreepayments.com slash moment. That's braintreepayments.com slash moment. I want to back up a little bit to how, how you got to now being a king of the world, but... Keep going. I like this. Um, no, that was it. That's the highest. <laughs> that's the compliment. King of the world. Uh, where does it go from there, really? <laughs> Universe? Down. Take it wherever you want. It goes down. But I, I want to back up because you're super available on social media. You do every, what, Sunday, 10 questions or I Wednesday, Wednesdays and Wednesdays Sunday and Sundays. How do I know? That's sick that I know that it's you do Wednesdays. It's seven questions. It's and seven Sundays, questions. but you do the questions. Yes. And also you're available at other times to yep. answer questions. And you've been somebody on a couple of different public message boards where you've engaged with writers who are trying to break in, right? Yep. And often the, the this question of talent versus work comes up. And you wrote a post a while ago that talked about at a young age realizing you could control what the reader felt. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how that happened or when you realized that? Yeah, it's funny you say that. I... I always wanted to be a writer. I I asked for a typewriter for my 10th Christmas present. And I just, I don't know what it was. My dad had books lying around. Okay, where'd you grow? So where'd you grow up? I grew up in Dallas, Texas. My dad would leave books lying around. I was, I would pick up Stephen King. I was reading Stephen King books when I was 10 and 11. And I read Lord of the Rings and I wanted to write, uh, you know, a story about a gnome or hobbit or whatever. And I just knew that this is something I wanted to do. And then when I was in high school, I had there was another kid in my class. We both loved creative writing, this guy named Ian Gertz. And uh, we would take a sheet of paper and I don't know. This is uh, going to make me like a dork, but we would take a sheet of paper and we would write a title on the sheet of the paper and then we would swap papers. And we, my goal was to write the opposite of whatever he thought I was going to do with that title. You know, if it said the vampire pencil seller, I was going to do something completely different than what he had. And what I realized is... And I think it was from these creative writing classes in high school, which weren't really creative writing. They were just part of English, you know. I I could make people laugh or I could or I could surprise them. And that I think that's to me 
what dawned on me, good writing surprised you. How old do you think you were? I was probably 14 or 15. Uh, so you actually, you had like the, this conscious realization, like if, uh, if I want to engender a certain feeling in a reader, I have the ability to do that. Yeah. And that was like hardwired, do you think? Or was it because you'd been writing like so much between 10 and 14? You know what? I think it's when you, when you gave somebody something and you saw them laughing. Like, because, or you saw that moment where they got to the surprise, you know? And What was your buddy's name? Ian Gertz. So you would give Gertz, you're yeah. saying when you would hand Gertz the thing, if, if when he got to that, you would watch him read it. Yes. And he saw that you went sideways. Yes. And then you'd see him start snickering or laughing. And it was the same thing, though, if you had a book report. And then I would write the most, you know, the, the surprise book report of whatever it was. And you'd have to go up in front of the class. And I knew I could get a laugh or shock them or surprise them. And I don't know, I always got good grades in English and bad grades in math, so I just felt like that's where I was headed. Was it a supportive environment for this kind of thing at home? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom and dad were both, um, yeah, both really supportive. The difference was when I went to college, I went to Baylor University in uh, Waco, Texas, who are playing right now, by the way, Brian. I came here for you, even though Baylor... I've, I've... I've watched you get your heart broken by Baylor so many times that I don't feel that it's, I feel you're actually, it's an act yeah, of self-preservation on your it's part. Sad. So, But this year we're going to win the national championship. You heard it. Oh, first. this is the year. You heard it first okay. from me. But when I went to Baylor, my dad, who was very pragmatic and who was a businessman, told me, you got to go to the business school. And I said, okay. I mean, I didn't. Was that a condition of paying for no, college? No, but I just didn't know what I was doing. So I was, you know, you're looking for influence, you know, in your life. And uh, and so I thought, well, business school, I'll get a job. You know, that's what you want when you get out of school. And I honestly had no idea what the career of writer was other than, well, maybe I could write a book that somehow will get published and somebody will read it. You just didn't know in Texas, I guess, growing up. I mean, I saw the books on my dad's shelf and thought I would like to do that, but I didn't know how to do that. You didn't understand how to close the gap from where you were to there. No. And there was Were no, you writing every Like at that time, were you writing every day? I don't know that every day is right, but I mean, I had notebooks of short stories and-, and uh, Were you showing them to people? No, not really. You know, no. I- No. No. I, I mean, my friend Ian and- you know, whoever was... Oh, there was a young lady you were trying yeah, to impress. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So then, so when I got to school, I, I went into the business school for the first two years, but quickly didn't... I knew I didn't know what I was doing. Like, accounting was... It might as well have been written in Greek. And I had something called business calculus, which I honestly still to this day couldn't tell you what any of it was. I'm not sure what my grades were. I'm sure they weren't good. But then I started taking English classes, which were more English literature, there was a professional writing major, but it was more like technical writing. So it was just reading. And I started reading things that I would have never gotten my hands on. So in my junior year, I said to my dad, I'm going to get an English degree. And uh, he said, OK, he didn't care at that point. And then I stayed and got a master's in English lit, which was really like getting thrown into the deep end of the pool. You, you know? mean because you weren't somebody who had done that kind of reading before? I hadn't. Well, I hadn't. I was not a prep school kid. No, I was a you? public school kid. I read. I read like you know, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, and uh, The Sun Also Rises, like the bare bones of English 
Texas public school <laughs> literature, you know. Right, but you weren't reading Dostoevsky. No, none of that. And my Shakespeare exposure was Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it was literally like... Hell of a play, though. <laughs> it was pretty good. It was pretty you know, good. As far yeah. as that goes. My kids love it now. Yeah. But so then, um, yeah, so I stayed and got a master's in English Lit, and that that was really eye-opening for me because a whole class on Chaucer, a whole class on Spencer's The Fairy Queen, and it was a two and a half years, and at the end you had to have read... We got we got an oral test on like sixty authors and one hundred and twenty works, and they could ask you anything. So that to me was the uh, a pivot when you talk about the moment, going in for those orals and having to know backwards and forwards one hundred and twenty works uh, was really one of the crowning achievements of my. Well, college everyone career. always says the key to success in Hollywood is being good at oral. So <laughs> you've. I know. I mean, that's literally that's the what kind you... of thing you can see on billions. That's this fall. What, that's what everybody. <laughs> that's what they say, Derek. I had never heard that before, but I nailed my orals. I nailed well, my orals. That explains why. Every why you have three shows and twelve novels. <laughs> but anyway, that was that's it. a great yeah. pull quote. Well, still, and so then, even graduating with the degree in literature, I didn't know how to become a writer. And back then, again, we didn't have the internet, right? So I would go to the library and there was a book. Do you remember those? Um, the Writer's Market. Oh, totally. Like the, the yeah. Writer's Market 1995. And it was a thick book and you would flip through it and it would tell you where you the could publishers sell a short and story. All that stuff. Or yeah. where, who would publish your kind of fiction? And you'd send off query letters. That's what I was doing in 1995. So you got out of college and you started sending out query letters. I was trying to write short stories, you know, as all graduate school collegiate and English you, literature geeks do. And were you writing popular short, like, like were you, at that time, because you were in grad school, were you writing literature? Or were you writing it's genre? It's funny you fiction? say that, because I, I was writing, like, what I thought was going to be, like, the literary magazine, kind of, which I'd be embarrassed to show now. But when I graduated and I married the love of my life, Christy, who is still my wife, uh, in 95, when we got married, I took a job in advertising, but I wanted I stayed on the business side because I didn't want to be create I didn't want to be doing ad jingles. I didn't want to be doing creative writing. I wanted to do my own creative writing. This right? is really interesting because people ask this question all yeah. the time. So drill down a little bit on this. On how you because I'm so interested. Yeah. You're 23 years old or yeah, something. 24. Yeah. And you were able to think this. Th- uh, yes. You were thinking about managing your yes. your your creativity for sure. So, so how did that thought process go? Okay, well, my first thought was I got to have money, right? So I got, and I loved, I wanted to work in advertising because it just seemed fun. I had no idea really in, in what Texas. it was. In Texas. And my first job was in Atlanta, okay. but close enough. But what I realized is there's two sides of advertising. Yeah. And it's really, it's really the same as Hollywood. There's the creatives, which are us. There's the uh, business account managers. Um, which is what I ended up doing. And then there's the clients, which are like the studios. The account managers are kind of like the producers. You got to keep both sides happy. But uh, what I realized is if I go into a job and I'm spending 12 hours of my creative energy on writing the next great, you know, advertisement for Chick-fil-A, then I'm not going to be working on the novel or the screenplay. I mean, you knew you'd be gassed when you got home. Yeah. Or before, you know. So, So I was in Atlanta from 96 to 99. And I would get up in the morning an hour before I'd have to leave for work, and I'd work on either a screenplay or a book. And then when I got home at night, and this was the nice thing is there was no distractions because AOL had those dial-up modems that would take an hour and a half. Who wants to do that? So I would end up writing on a book for those 
you know, two hours a day, basically. Morning, an hour in the morning and an hour at night. That's how I would do it. And then when I got, I finished a novel that was terrible, but I learned, that was when I switched from saying, okay, I'm going to write, try to write, you know, the next great American novel to what I actually liked, which was like cool crime thriller kind of thing. So I did learn a lot writing that. I realized, oh, I don't have to do all those rules that I learned in graduate school, like all of the things that, you know. You learn that by actually trying to write the literary novel. By not writing the literary novel for the first time. Oh, so you didn't even start. So when you started the novel, the first bad one, you you immediately went, I'm not, you know what, I got to, if I'm going to spend this time. I don't have to be Hemingway or Steinbeck or Faulkner or whatever. I can actually, Stephen King was my hero. I'll try to write like that. Or Donald Westlake. Yeah, Exactly. Because um, there's a lot of Donald Westlake in your fiction, and in, in a great Westlake. way, in a, yeah. and I mean that in a great yeah. way. I love, I love Donald Westlake. So you decided to do that. Now, would, would it be when you would be at work though, and then you'd be, you were an account manager, yeah, account manager, and you would be dealing with the creative, and you would get because you were like a great creative, you would get the better idea. Would you share it? <laughs> how did that? It's funny, like, man. I, yeah. You got to, you got to know your lane because yeah, so those guys will work? get pissy. So I just stayed out of it. Honestly, I did. I would, I wouldn't. I'd go down and spend a lot of time in the creative guys' offices because I really like these guys. Yeah, you understood them more. Yeah, I'm still good friends with these two guys, Jeff Cole and Brad Ramsey, who, you know, are are now running an agency in Atlanta. Uh, But they were like the young creative guys. I was like the young account manager. And it was so fun going down to their offices. But no, I, 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 it was something innate in me was like, I don't know if it was self-preservation, but I'd stay in my lane. Like, I would have to be creative in how I was going to sell their ideas. Sure. But I wasn't going to be pitching, like, here's a different board, here's a different did way Did they to know it. you were, like, would you tell no. people? You, that's what I want to know. No. So, so how and, did you, ma- like, how did that, because <laughs> obviously that was, like, the most important, like, okay, yeah. you had your, your wife was important, but, like, yeah. obviously your create those creative hours were the most important hours to you. How would you? No, nobody knew. And what happened was Brant, Brant and I had gone to graduate school together. Brant had gone out to Hollywood. Michael Brant, your yeah, creative Michael partner. Brandt. Uh, had gone out to Hollywood to, uh, he, he wanted to be a writer too, but he had gone through film school and his thing was editing. He, he knew how to do work in Avid, which at the time in 96, 97 was fairly new. Yeah. The nonlinear editing, exactly. digital nonlinear editing was a new, a new thing. It was then. a brand, it was kind and of, if you film. could be expert at working it even, You'd it, get it, you could job. get a job. Exactly. Yeah. So Brant was out working and I had this idea for a script. We had taken screenwriting class taught by this guy, Bob Darden, who we still name characters after in almost everything uh, that we do. And uh, anyway, we had taken this class together, so we kind of knew the basics of what screenwriting was. And then I had this idea for a script in 97, probably. And I started emailing it back and forth to Brant. This is while you're writing your novel? Yeah, while I was writing my bad. While you're writing the bad first novel. First novel. Are you sure it's terrible? Have you oh gone my back? god, it's so bad. It's you should so post it. You should post like no, a page. It's a, really. You should post a page a week. Or can something. I tell you what the premise was? Yeah. So the premise was a kid was uh, you know you, you've heard of the second coming obviously right. Yeah. The, so the 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 annunciation in Christianity is yeah. when the angel comes and tells Mary she's pregnant. So in my <laughs> in my first novel. The, an angel tells this kid, this is where the second coming is going to take place. And now it gets out. And so all these people want to kill this kid before 
because he's the new. I don't Isn't know. Isn't HBO basically make making this series? It now? doesn't even make sense. Aren't they, it might be. Aren't they basically like, making that the leftovers? I think it may, essentially. <laughs> Damn you, HBO. Anyway, uh, that novel is truly terrible. You could totally make a movie out of that that would be huge, by the way. Now? Yeah. Now? The, the time is coming? perfect for that. It was called that. The Second Coming. There's a book called that that I read like um, in college. No, it wasn't part of the curriculum or just after college about a woman who is, she realizes she is the second coming. Maybe you read my book. Did you find I think that was a Yates poem too. Anyway, uh, so Brant, oh, so we started writing the screenplay back and forth in 98, um, sending it via email. And uh, it's so funny because Brant and I always, we knew each other since I was a freshman. We liked each other, but we kind of ran in different circles. If you would have told me in 98, oh, by the way, your next 25 years are going to be with this guy, Michael Brandt, I would have been like, that's the one who I was going to be with? But he read the first 30 pages or whatever I had written, and he was like, this is great. Why don't you keep doing this? I said, no, no, no. I want you to write it with me. I don't want notes from you. And so he's like, oh. And so we started writing the script back and forth. And we ended up optioning it in 99, this script called The Courier, which was the first thing we sold. Right. And I moved from Atlanta. Which got made, didn't oh, it? Oh, so this is where this started. It yeah. Ne- it never really got made. What? But it did get made. It never really got made, Brian. You can't find it anywhere. It, it, it was committed to, at that time, film. I'm pretty no, sh- you can't. I'm pretty certain it got made. It. You definitely I'm cannot find sure it. I'm fairly sure that the thing got made. If you looked for it, you would not be able to find it, Brian. Have you bought up? That's what you did Brian. with your new Chicago money? You you guys bought up every <laughs> All the copies. You bought up every copy All the copies that existed? Yeah. Yes. But so, uh, I know where this story uh, started. So Runner Runner never got made either. Let me just say, <laughs> you, that, you can't find no, that. that. Runner Runner. No, that you couldn't have. The no, theater. That never, no, there's no way <laughs> you least, saw it. At least the career, you could have never made. seen it in the Nobody theater. ever saw it. It never got made. <laughs> okay, so we all have those. Yeah. Uh, I know why I was telling the story, which is when the courier sold. That's what I, yeah. It was the front page of Variety because Brad Pitt wanted to do it. It's a whole another story that you don't need to You got tell a anywhere. Brad Pitt movie Can you made? believe it? Congratulations. He did not star in it, but it was on the front page of Variety. And that when that happened was the first time everyone at the ad agency realized I had this other ambition. No one knew you had this no other life. No one knew it. Yeah. And, and so, so what happened? You walked in that day. I'm, this is, yeah, I'm fascinated by yeah. this. Did you know, oh, shit, they're going to see that it's me? Well, it's so funny. Back then, um, you know, the internet was still pretty in its nascent stages. And so people weren't, like, checking the Hollywood Reporter and Variety. So it was literally me who had been checking Hollywood Reporter and Variety. And then it came up. I remember that feeling because it was – I knew it was happening, but when it – when it first hit that front page of Variety, my heart started beating so fast. I I mean, I just remember I was in this strange state of, like, I cannot believe my name and Brant's name are on the cover of Variety, and I'm sitting in Atlanta. Anyway, I printed it out. I started passing it out, and I quit. I You quit that day? I quit that day, and I said I'm moving. That was on March 15th of 99, and I was in L.A. on April 15th of 99. That's odd. Did yeah. you went move near where Brant? Yeah, we we lived. actually lived in the same building. Which the hilarious thing is, so an apartment right next to Brant opened up. My wife and I moved there. I didn't know anything about Los Angeles. I'd been there like once in my life, and so the fact that we had emailed the script back and forth. Now our computer shared a wall, but we still stayed in separate rooms and emailed back and yeah, forth. Yeah, you're like because... the top and John of exactly. screenwriting. You don't write them in the same room. Yeah, with we each don't want to do it that way. Yeah, you each write scenes and send them back and forth, but. I... How so? You're there when you told those two guys, 
you showed it to them. Yeah, Jeff and Brad. What happened to their, with that, you got to do that kind of surprise thing like yeah. you used to do to Gertz. Yeah. I mean, so what happened? I honestly think, well, they're, they're awesome dudes. Did they so give they, you a, like a no, hug? Were they, they, I, I can't remember exactly what happened, but I do remember that th- there's this feeling of, oh, it's still kind of bullshit. You know, like, oh, it's on the front page of Variety, but it's probably not. It's probably going to be bullshit. You know, that's just, I think You're every, that other people had? Or yeah, had that feeling. That, that There's that, people just don't understand until they're in Hollywood that even that's a big deal. You know, just getting. Yeah, I remember when we <laughs> sold Rounders, some friend of my dad's, a guy I'd known my whole life, called me and he said, so when do they bring in the writers? And I went like. <laughs> No, we're the, we're yeah, the no, that's we us. wrote it already. Yeah, it's no, it's written. He goes, yeah, yeah, but then they put the writers and yeah, they go make then the. You go. No, we. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, it was great. Now we get Dave and I still ask for it all the time to each other. Well, at least you you guys are from New York and people are a little more savvy in New York than like my either Atlanta or Texas. You might as well be on the moon. I mean, people have gotten savvier since the internet, but back then I remember when Brant and I got fired from our first project, which was probably. Trying to think what we got fired from. I don't even remember. We got hired to do something and it was in the trades. And then then subsequently we get fired. You know, it happens. And I remember some friends from Texas had come in and they were like, what's going on with, let's just say it was the A-team. I don't sure. even remember what it was. What's going on with the A-team? And we're like, oh, we got we got fired from that. <gasps> oh, my God. Oh, my God. You guys got fired? And I'm, I'm like, uh, the same studio hired us right. a week later to get... But it's such a different thing to a Texan or to a Georgian that yeah, you got fired from What do you think allowed you to have, like, these dreams even? Because you were so... Like, what do you think allowed that to be the case? Wow. I don't know. I I always loved movies. I always loved writing. And I think not knowing how hard it was is what allowed me to have the dreams. Or not knowing the, the odds, again. Yeah, not knowing the odds. I had no idea. I didn't know. I I didn't even know how... The process worked once you sold the script. I thought, okay, once you sell the script, then two weeks later, we're going to be sitting on a set, right? Yeah, making a movie, (laughs) sure. Yeah. How long from when you moved to when you had a movie made? So I moved there in April of 99, and our first movie came out in 2003, which was Too Fast, Too Furious. But we got that job December of 01. We shot that in 02. So it was about two years from when we sold The Courier to when we actually were working on a movie that was a go movie. That you knew would go, would that get knew, made. Yeah, that we knew would get made. And was it a hard adjustment when you first got out there? I mean, you said you didn't really know oh, how things yeah. worked. Was it no, it difficult was, it was. It was very difficult, but here's what. Brant and I both had the attitude, no one was going to work harder than us. We, we went in, at the time, if you'll remember, there were stacks of papers called open writing assignments. Yeah. And all the agents would get them, all the managers would get them. We had a manager, Andrew Dean, who's still our manager, and he would have this thick thing called the open writing assignment list on his desk that would get published once a month. And this was any studio that had bought the rights to a magazine, a book, the an old sequel. Or, or a screenplay that was, a um, screenplay that, they that they wanted they to still make rewrite. the movie, but they got rid of the writer. Exactly. So these Sheets would come out and Brant and I would go over to Andrew Dean's office and we would sit in there and we would go through the open writing assignment list and we would pick out 10 things that month that we thought we could do. You know, something that spoke to us, but, uh, you know, we thought we could put a pitch together. Not one thing. We would go 10 10 things things. in a month. And so then Brant and I would go back and we'd sit at our computers and we'd come up with a pitch on all 10 things that we would do. And for people who don't know, when you say come up with a pitch, 
That doesn't just mean a paragraph about no. what the thing should be. Like, what does that mean, no. come up with a Beginning, pitch? Beginning, middle, and an end for all, and with characters, with scenes, with all of these I mean, that could things. be a, an eight-page document? Yeah, 12. You know, sometimes a 12-page 12 12 document, document of here's what this should be, real details yes. on 10 to 12 yes. pages. And we'd say to Andrew, set up the Armand Flint meeting. Set up the meeting on... And, and these know. would be meetings that... Um, that your agent would be like, oh, they're not looking for you for this job. Right. Well, the nice thing was with The Courier, even though it didn't get made, it had Brad Pitt, and it was a big enough sale that people wanted to meet us, right? In the beginning, yeah. In the beginning, for that first year. And I swear, Brant and I probably, I'm not kidding, pitched 85 things in that first year. And the first thing we got was like the cheapest Writers Guild minimum rewrite on a movie that was never going to go thing. But that experience of that year of pitching and coming up with stories changed our lives in terms of work ethic, being able to come up with ideas on the fly, change ideas on the fly, which is what screenwriting uh, that's is. That's great. My, my buddy James Altucher, who's a great uh, writer and has a uh, couple, three popular podcasts, does this thing every day where he comes up with 10 ideas. Awesome. Every day, 10. It can, he's like, come up, pick an area. Something in the world you can make better and do 10 ideas a day. Yeah. And he's like, you will be amazed. It's a muscle. Yeah, it is. It is. And if you do it, you end up realizing that you have this endless capacity. Absolutely. For invention. So you did that. Now, you'd never done something in like sort of a that rigorous and that organized a manner. No, before, but you right? know what? It, it taught us how to pitch. Because the first time you go into a pitch, you have no, we, nobody in Waco, Texas taught us how to pitch a Hollywood room. Our managers didn't really even know. But you must have always been good. You're very good in a room and very good with people. But, we, so but you there's must an art all... to it. You know, there's an art to pitching. And we, I think our first pitch, which was for our man Flint, which still obviously has never been remade. But it should be. We. So top to tough Coburn, for sure. I think we went in and it was, I think we tough were an hour Coburn. into the pitch when we realized Maybe this isn't how An you're hour supposed to into do it. the yeah. bridge. Okay, just for those who don't know, you want to. Fifteen minutes is good. Fifteen minutes can get on the long side now, but yeah. we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, we were pitching details. You know what they were wearing. Oh, it was terrible. Anyway, we learned. As you're watching bored faces, you learn. And the more you do it, the more you learn. And you you wouldn't. Did you sort of say to yourself then? Because this one of the great I think things about you is that you're kind of indefatigable. Like you don't really allow discouragement from the outside and from someone who knows watched you knows you for a long time now <laughs> it doesn't appear like you allow discouragement to knock you for a loop for very long yeah no i mean you go through it's a roller coaster anybody will tell you this writing life is an absolute roller coaster Every, sometimes within minutes you will have the highest high and then get knocked on your ass and i think you've just got to say you a trust your own talent like i i it's funny i have a healthy ego about my talent, especially now. I mean, it's been, I've been doing this long enough now that I'm like, okay, it's not luck. Uh, it's not just the work ethic, but, you know, I have some skill. So once you start trusting that, uh, it helps pick you up off the floor when you get knocked down. But there are times where I'll hear something like, oh, they didn't like that. And I'm like, wait, this is me. I wrote this. I'm the, look at my track record. You're going to tell me you don't like this? Um, but before but, you had a track record, yeah. were you able to still find a way to have that keep it going? Because now you say, oh, we have 85 pitches. But, yeah. like, uh, you know, sometimes you'll take out an idea and you could have six pitches that and, and nobody buys the thing. And, man, that. Oh, no, it's it still. Can, oh, it'll still knock you. No, I get. Believe me when I say I take it on the chin. And, and there'll be times when you'll get like we'll get fired off of something that I thought was going well. And then, Still, or, you, or you didn't get the pitch, you know, you, you, you pitched something and, and somebody else job, got yeah. it. 
And it still feels like somebody punched me in the face. I, I do not like failure at all. Uh, do I have an ability to say, okay, you know what? That's behind Bounce me. Bounce back. On. Yeah. You have to. Did you always have that? Like, from, I don't know, oh, man. Like if uh, you would get, re- like rejection, is, has it always sort of been a kind of thing where you could take the blow and keep going? Because facing rejection is, I think, and being able to keep going is one of the things that allows someone to have a cre- live like a, yeah. a life as a creative person. Right? Yeah, I think, and and you have a partner, so you know what this is like. I think having a partner really helps because I think if there was just one of you and and you get rejected and it's like, oh, they didn't like me, and then you're you're not working on another thing. I think having a partner has always helped us work on more than one thing at once. So as long as there's another iron in the fire, then that failure can be, you know, put aside. But also just having someone else to share a victory with or a defeat, you know. And then your marriage was you had somebody who was there and was like not only rooting, but you knew the little short term failure. Like you guys were in it together. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, well, you guys, if you knew my wife, which Brian does, but if you, the audience, knew my wife. She's the greatest. So I got lucky. I married above my head way back in 1995. And uh, it's been, you know, I always say I've just been playing catch up ever since. She's been not only by my side, she's the one who gets pissed. Like if we get rejected, it's like she wants to go talk to DreamWorks about why they didn't, you know, hire us or whatever. So, yeah, the family life equally important. If you had someone who was nagging you or saying, you can't do this, go get the plumber job. I don't know how you No, yeah, I always say it. the same. Yeah. You know, I got married in 92 and, my, and- To a writer. Yeah. And who absolutely having Amy uh, there the whole time and telling me, no, 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 they're wrong. You know, having someone who can really look me in the eye and be like, they're wrong yeah. is very helpful. Sure. So, which obviously you had. Uh, yeah, had it's funny well. because you get, you, like my partner, Michael, will leave the meeting together And that's something you can't convey to your wife as much as you'd like to. The fact that he was sitting next to me when so-and-so said, you know, X, Y, Z. Now we can go out into the parking lot and be like, what an asshole. Or that was awesome, you know. Whereas you go home and it's a different feeling. Now, you've extended that, too, in that you have a real – you're part of a real community of screenwriters in California. You can also – and all over the country – California, New York, Virginia, who can, <laughs> hey, Jeff, who yeah. can um, help you in a way, I think, or you share this stuff. For with. sure. That, and I think a generation of writers before us didn't have it. Do no. you think that's had an, an impact or been helpful oh, to you? By, oh, uh, amazingly so. We have, you know, um, and Brian's in this community too. I, I guess it's spurred with the strike in 07. It seems like it was right before that, like the sort the of- The year before that, right? And the internet had started this- thing where you could have these things called message boards. And, you know, as writers prior to that, so from 99 to 05, 06, I didn't know other writers. There was, you you would either be replacing someone on a job or they would be replacing you. And that might be a time where you would, somebody would call you and say, hey, what were you thinking? And that was it as far as connections to other writers. And then the these message boards started and there was a Writers Guild one, or, or it wasn't Writers Guild sanctioned, but I don't even remember how it started. And that was in the run-up to the strike where I first started meeting writers. And then it was the writers who had sort of the similar sense of humor or taste or whatever. Uh, Then we started meeting, like actually meeting, meeting. And these, and yes, that's, now you've got a whole group of people who are going through exactly what you're going through. And 
There's not anybody who hasn't done what Scott Frank's done or John Lee Hancock's done. So if you get into that situation, you know you have two people right there you can call. And that's why we call each other. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. And can you just, talk, I, I want to talk about, because even as you, as you talk about this and you talk about there's a talent or you talk about you would outwork everybody, it also seems to me that I, I've, I've rarely seen anybody who takes more joy out of writing than, than, than you do. Like for, for me, I, you know, I love the days that it goes really well, but it seems to me that, you know, you've organized your life in a way that you could write as much as you can and that you still just get off on doing it. Yeah, I do. I, yeah, I've always loved to write. I've always liked the page. I've liked the blank page more than the editing. I don't like getting notes. I like coming up with something. I like zigging when they think I'm going to zag. And... Because you'll even play games with your friends. Like, yeah. you'll, just for the fun of it, send a bunch of us, uh, you know, um, an email that has, like, <laughs> some ridiculous list of fake movie yeah. ideas. Yeah, I don't Be, know why I do You that. just like... Well, <laughs> no, it just seems like you still just, like... um. Like, I don't know if it's a conscious thing to keep this the, the kid who was doing that with his friend alive, or it's just hardwired in you now. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like reading also, so anything, I like anything funny, anything surprising. So I, then I try to do that to the friends. And I don't know, I get ideas that'll never, ever be in a novel or in a screenplay or just making fun of something. So I got to share it with somebody. So now, so you didn't like business classes and you didn't like, you know, that stuff seemed foreign to you, but... But now you're in a position where you're managing yeah. a lot of people, right? Because you are executive producer of yeah. three TV series yeah. that are on the air, two yeah. of which I two you are have the main, heavy yeah. day-to-day responsibilities for. But the third, you are an executive I'm, producer. I'm an executive producer, but nominally. How do you, so even running two yeah. television yeah. series. And you're a novelist. I mean, you know, your new uh, book, A Different Lie, is coming out November 15th. And... So what you, more can you say about that, Brian? Oh, about uh, well, here's what I know about it. Here's what I can say. I can say, and I I can say this deeply that Columbus and the Silver Bear are books I love. Oh, thank you. Columbus thank is you. an incredible character. Thank you. He is a funny, sardonic, uh, wounded character yeah. who also can hurt people. You know, just because the New York Times called the series devastatingly cool, I don't. That's for other people to say. That's what the critics say. I mean, just because Kirkus gave it a starred review, that's for the critics oh, to I say. I hope Craig Mason is listening right now. I really <laughs> hope Craig just heard you do that. That's Brian, I don't put a lot of stock into what, you know, even when all the critics are celebrating it, I don't. 
That's I'd rather the readers tell me. What a bunch they... of times over the years, you've looked at me across a breakfast table and said, "I'm done with this stupid fucking crime writing. I can't write another novel. The novel is dead. It's impossible. <laughs> who would be stupid? Yeah. You've literally looked at me and gone, who would be fucking stupid, stupid enough, enough to write another book? I know. So what the hell? I don't know. I can't explain. What do you it. think it is? I because <laughs> you've definitely like said that a lot and publicly. I know. There's. Something about writing prose where where you're not worried about budgets and you're not worried about deadlines and you're not worried about set pieces and you're not worried about, you know, the main character has to have a dog so he'll be so more likable. People ask me all the time, they're, and, and I do far less than you. People constantly ask me how I uh, do as much stuff yeah. as I do. Like, it's probably the most common question when I'm out. In the, like, I don't understand. Are you so productive? Yeah. But I look at you, and I truly don't understand how you do all the stuff that you do, because you also like play golf and have a social life. I have no. I did you take me in golf last time? I think you took my money last time we played golf. I did. You won, but then I hustled you on the seventeenth hole. That's why you have a show called Billions. You don't want to gamble with me. I've learned. That's the thing. Don't gamble with me, and you'll be fine. Yeah. I used to be bad at it, but that's another story. Um. Danny Joseph in college beat me at every sport, and then I was like, "Oh, you can hustle." You What's can... he doing now? He's like a successful guy oh. in you know real estate and stuff. Oh. Great athlete. Good job, Danny. He would beat me at everything. It was maddening. <laughs> but you could take him in poker. No. No. Golf. No. Oh. Danny, no. Danny's better at like every one of those things. You need to get Danny on. And in here. fact, <laughs> he was better than me at poker. We went back then. Yeah, I think now I could. I, I'm pretty sure I'd be okay in poker. But he would beat me in poker. He played all the time. And I went home over Christmas break of junior year, and I did nothing but practice gin. I read three gin books. I played constantly. I came back to college. I was like, we're playing gin now. And he would compete at anything against me. We played gin three times. I beat him, and he was like, I'm not playing gin with you anymore. (laughs) So that was smart. He was really good at that stuff. And he would just go, oh, that's, you obviously, he figured it out. I was like, you obviously figured that, planned this. Yeah, you figure out that I'm not going to play somebody who's better than me. But yeah, I I, I beat you by by, uh, hitting a great shot out of the sand. I remember. I think 18 or 17 at your club. But that doesn't matter. The question is this. Can you break down for for me and for us, like sort of how you think about your day every mm-hmm. day, like what you what you do each day, what it looks like to be somebody who's running all these television shows and producing prose and being a father. Like, how yeah. do you manage your day and running a writer's room? Yeah. How do you break all that down? I'll give you a day. Yeah. Give so me a day. this was a day when I was as I was writing a different lie, um, which so, will be out on November fifteenth. <laughs> so. So I, I had written three books about a contract killer. The same publisher called and said, would you write, like to write a fourth? And I said, okay, but I need a deadline. You got to give me a deadline. And they said, well, if you can finish the book by February, end of February, then it'll be, we can get it out in 2015. I said, okay, I love that. I like having deadlines. So in October-ish, I looked at my day and I said, all right, if I'm going to finish this book by the end of February, then I got to get a certain amount of words done Every day. What was that number of words? Well, if you could do a thousand words a day, but not every day. So the way I looked at it was there's 31 days in October. If I can do 15 of the 31 days and I literally have a check, you know, a, a sheet of paper, 
in my, because I write by hand on books, I'd have a sheet of paper on that and I would be marking X's. So if I could count 15 X's for October, that'd be 15,000 words. Typical book, because I write short books, are around 65,000 words. 15,000, so wait, 1,000 handwritten words. Yes. How many pages? Is it legal pads? I don't even know what page. How do you know it's that many words? Uh, I kind of figured out if I could write four handwritten pages, it'd be around 1,000 words. Okay. So then... I, so what I did was I, I didn't want Brant or Matt Olmsted, who's our show, showrunner on um, both Fire and PD, really my two best friends. I didn't want them thinking, oh, he's not doing what he should be doing, which is working on Chicago Fire and Chicago PD because he's writing this book. So I was not going to let them know that I had done anything. And what I ended up you doing- You were hiding this from your two best friends. I was hiding it, but not hiding it. At work, what I did was I set, I've always been a morning guy, and yeah. I think maybe even having kids really helped, and graduate school definitely helped. But I would set my alarm at 5 o'clock. I would get up at 5. I would do my four pages before the kids got up. So the kids would get up around 6.50. Um, so you're up at 5, and how by, between 5 and how long do you have your coffee first? No, I go to my office. I usually drink a Diet Coke or a Diet Dr. Pepper. And, and how long until you're at your desk from when you wake up? Five minutes. You yeah. get up and you go Walk to the desk. Walk down the hall, get on the desk, open up the thing. And start writing. And the little trick on writing books that I've found is if you end your fourth page or your thousandth word where you're in the middle of a thought rather than the end of a chapter or the end of a paragraph even, if you end in the middle of a thought, you can pick right back up. That's the Hemingway thing of leaving a wet edge. Yeah, I mean, he talked, that's in, Hemingway talks about exactly that. Damn it, Koppelman. Yeah. That's not an original (laughs) idea. No. Oh. And it's Hemingway? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Wet Edge. The Hemingway, who you already shat on by saying no, Sun love, Also Sun Rises. Also, I love that. It's one of my favorite books. just a piece of high school one of my shit. Favorite, no, one of my favorite It is books. one of my favorite yeah. books ever. I love So wait, so you, you leave the Wet Edge. Leave or, the Wet Edge. Or as you'd say, in the middle of a thought. And so if I could do 15 out of... Okay, so then the kids would get up. I make them breakfast. And this is something I've been doing with the kids that's been awesome. So they have about an 45 minutes before they get picked up for school. And I would make them breakfast, and then I'm, I started reading them something. And it, even if it's five pages, if it's 10 pages, but I said, my kids are 10 and 8. And last year, I was like, I'm not reading them The Magic Treehouse anymore. Right. They're like, I got to challenge these guys. They got to be. So we start, I started picking out books that are past what they're probably are age appropriate, but as an experiment, let's see how it goes. So we read Of Mice and Men. We oh, read uh, uh, Lord of the Flies. We read, um, I read Stephen King's The Body just because that was very influential That's Stand to By me. me. Yeah, one yeah, of the great stories of all time. Yeah. And uh, it's funny. So I'm censoring myself a little bit as I'm going because there's some pretty, uh, you know, bad language or, or bodiness. But I found I had to explain to my kids what a harlot was, you know, in Of Mice and Men. And then, of course, like I'm... Tears are streaming down my face at the end of Mice and Men. My kids are like, why is dad crying? Anyway, we started doing that. So that would be my morning. I would I would do that. Then, And are you not? I just want to ask a question yeah. as we go. So that's your morning. You wake up 5. You're at your desk by 5.10 or yeah. something like that, 5.05. You're handwriting your 1,000. Yep. In an hour and a half, you're writing 1,000 pages. Yep, 1,000 words. I, th- I mean, it's 1,000 yeah. words within uh, an hour and a half. You're very active on social media, email, message boards. Are you doing none of that in the morning? Do you that, not check yeah, your emails? Do, I do not check my emails or So or your emails are not boards. checked until your kids are out the door? Until I go to work. So then, so then. Oh, that's awesome. So, Wait, you don't check. I just, because you're yeah. running show. So an emergency could happen. Yeah. And like, I guess Mike, Mike, one of those guys could call you. Yeah, but, absolutely. But you're not going to check your email. No. 
until your children are at school and you're on your way to work or yeah, at work? Exactly. Well, so usually I go to the gym, like from, you know, I got to get, you got to get some exercise in. So I'd either, so you're up at five, you're riding. Kids leave at 7.30. So then our office starts at 10. And then, so sometime in between 7.30 and 10, either go to the gym, go running, go hiking, do something active. And then, uh, and but I'll check my emails on the way there, on the way back, whatever. But there's never anything really like crazy. I've, I, don't, I can't remember a time where it was like, oh, stop everything. I got to get this email done. Because everybody knows when you're on the West Coast that nobody's really checking until 10 o'clock. So then... Uh, I get to the office by 10. And, and then, you don't feel gassed from having already, like the thing you were worried about in Atlanta. No. You don't feel gassed because you've already expanded no. ex- expended this creative energy. No. And you know what? I think that going, I think breaking it up by going to the gym or doing uh, running, I think clears all of that out. So then at 10 o'clock in the morning, I'd be at my office. And then it's just whatever is the day, you know? So the day might be on any given day, there's an outline coming in, there's a script coming in, there's a script we have to write, Brant and me. There's a cut to watch. There's a, uh, you know, dailies to look at if if there was a problem. Do so you look at dailies every day? No, I, I did in the first season, and now there's just too much. It's just, if it's an episode we wrote, I might check them out, but it's just But wait. otherwise, you have your writer of that episode watch the dailies <sighs> if they want to? Yeah, it's up to them. Honestly, I don't even look at the cut until after the director's cut. Uh, there's a director's cut and then a producer's cut. But you don't even look until the producer's cut. I don't cut. even look till the producer's cut because we have such a great, great post-production. Uh, but so you go into the office then. Yeah. And then when you're in the office working with the with the writers or yeah. dealing with the running of the show, your conscious mind is not thinking about Columbus. No, it's done. That's done for the, the day. The book is done for yeah. the day. Yeah, And now you're concentrating on your shows. And do you... Do you work in two different writers? So you have two different writers we rooms have, set up in the same offices? Do. But the writer's room, it's funny. Our writer's room is really intensive in the first couple of months as we're putting together the first half of the season. And then as everybody gets their episode assigned to them, they split off uh, and go to their own offices. So we'll end up having individual meetings with the writers on their boards. But we're not just in a writer's room all day long. We don't do it that way. Because they're... They're off and they're yeah. going. Yeah. So then you can do the other jobs of producing the yeah. show. Do you check exactly. in somehow with whoever you have on the set during the course of the day? It just depends. If, if there's a problem, you know, if if somebody calls me and is and says, "Hey, uh, can you talk to the director because they're saying they're not going to shoot X Y Z," then then you do that. And then at some point you'll go on Twitter, which now do you? Is this <laughs> now that happens constantly during, during the, the day. day? Yeah. And is that for fun for you, or is it? Is there a purpose to it? Or is it giving back? Like, how do you? How do you? How do you look at the value of incorporating that into your day? Well, there's like media? five sides to it, really. There's the social media side of the shows. The NBC, the channel, wants us to promote the shows. So, and I don't mind it. I love promoting the shows. It's I want more people to watch it. You know. So there's that aspect to it. So they want us to live tweet the show. So we do that on the East Coast broadcast. And then there's just the dumb thought that comes to your mind and you're like, well, I don't know if this will be funny. I'll try it. Or there's a funny picture of the kids that I want to put on there or some dumb thing. You know, I I don't even know what the purpose of Twitter is other than... But you just like... So I'm saying you just sometimes do it for fun. Absolutely. That's all. And is it important to you to keep the whole thing somehow fun for you? Yeah. Like doing all these jobs? Well, what what I've learned on Twitter and social media in general is... You don't owe anybody anything. So you'll have, you know, you have these Twitter followers and they're constantly asking you, can you do X, Y, Z? Can you tell me this spoiler? Can you say happy birthday to me? You know what? You don't owe that. That's just that. That's like 
you know, I, I love the followers that I have. I'm glad they follow me. That's why I do the seven questions twice a week so that I don't have to do it the rest of the time. Uh, but mostly it's for my amusement. And I think you, you, you'll you agree with this. To be a writer in Hollywood, probably the number one thing you can work on is having thick skin. You have to have thick skin. And so Twitter, if you were a fragile personality and you're on Twitter, is it... Uh, oh, okay, perfect. Yeah, you would be... Uh, you If you were a fragile personality... On Twitter, you, that's why people drop out. That's why they can't they can't handle it because the internet is dark, man. Yeah, it's dark, and so I just laugh. I you know you have to come. I think you have to show up with a fix. I mean, it's yes. funny when you're talking about the supportive community of a fellow screenwriters. I mean, eighty five percent of what we all do with one another is just rip ball each bust, other to shreds. Yeah, um, and I don't think that's um, because like oh we're trying to toughen our side. Yeah. Just part of what makes us for sure who we are. Like this for thing sure. is we just like. That's the uh, how we want to engage. It's funny because our actors. Like I just get... love the fact that you said that Matt and um, Michael are your best friends because I'm picturing how painful that is for Lowell to hear. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell him, please. Don't I'm listen. just understanding. Please don't listen to that, that he's sitting there going, "Wait a second, I thought that yeah. I was." And Mason, it's going to be tough. It's, that's going to be, be brutal this for is those be guys. A bad one uh, uh, to hear. But, but yeah. I will say it's funny because we have actors will get on. Twitter because NBC is saying, can you guys please help promote the shows? Get on. And the ones who haven't been on before, actors have a very fragile ego. They don't have thick skin. Most of them are, they're trying to emote and and get in touch with their feelings and all of that kind of stuff. And I've watched it happen over the last four years of an actor getting on Twitter and immediately being like, whoa, this is not for me. And I get that. You, you, you can't go at social media. I completely yeah. understand why actors aren't on. Yeah. A lot of the time. Yeah. Why the it's murky, dangerous waters. It's murky, dangerous waters. Uh, you have to laugh at it. At it. You know what's funny? That what you said um, made me think of something. I've, I've mentioned this before to some of my writer friends. When I was in high school, we had, uh, I don't know how other public high schools did it, but between first period and second period, for some reason, there was 15 minutes. Every other one was five minutes. You had to haul ass to your next class. But there was 15 minutes. And the same group of about nine guys would meet in one spot, and it was all it was was putting each other down for 15, 15 straight minutes. minutes. If you low low to you, if you wore a pink shirt that day, or if you or sure. if your haircut, you know, got whatever, you were gonna get it for 15 minutes, and you learned a to like take whatever was coming at you and deflect it onto somebody else. Or, you know, pivot or or you're, you had to have your ball busting game up, you know. And you think it served you. Dude, that's changed my life. The last 30 years are because of that 15 minutes that's that I had great. for three years of high school. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I com- completely. So thank you, Blake Calvert, Eric Leppard, Matt McGuire, Brandon Nash. You guys are the ones who changed my life. Uh, do you know those guys still? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where are they? Are they still there? Uh, they're all over. They're all over. How do you um? Just a few more things before we wrap up. So, to you, is the is the free writing of the novel? Is it is that a more sort of two things? One, are you thinking about as you're producing? If you have to produce that many words in that short a time span, you can't be overly concerned with 
the quality control on those pages at that stage of the process. Yeah. So are you feeling like that is just a very free sort yes. of joyous experience you, you of writing? It. Yep, for sure. And what what I end up doing is so if I handwrite out a thousand words, then at some point, maybe two weeks in, three weeks in, then I open up the word program and start putting it in. At, an, at night, I, do you do that? Like, when do you do I that? I don't even remember. Honestly, it's like, it's all a blur to me now, but probably on the weekend. But uh, that becomes edit number one, right? Because now now I'm putting, I'm taking my own work, I'm putting it into the computer. And you have some distance. Exactly. From the emotion of writing exactly. it. And so you, it, it's great. You know, the thing I do every day is those morning pages, the free writing three pages, you know, and for me, that is what just starts like me being, it's the thing that frees me to write the rest yeah. of the day without being the critic voice. Exactly. It seems like you're able to get rid of that. Like you don't have that critic voice. Like so many of no, us have this but, issue. It seems like you <clears throat> put it to, to the but side that's what, somehow. But that's the purpose of your morning pages. It's yes. the same thing is I don't go backwards. So as I'm writing those yeah. four pages, that thousand words, I'm never looking back. You're never going back. No. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. You're just forcing yourself just going forward. forward. Exactly. Knowing that in two weeks. I'm going to edit it. Right. So it, it means you're actually knowing you have to produce these pages and the quality of the pages can't matter to you right yeah. now. Brant and I call that the vomit draft. I mean, that's not unique to us, but a lot of people do it. But I... It was Hemingway, I, I think, who first oh my called God. it the it's all vomit. Hemingway. I think he first called it the vomit draft. Are you sure that draft. wasn't Steinbeck? <laughs> it I think might have Steinbeck been. did the vomit draft. That might have been Steinbeck's point yeah. of view. That's just a little... The just Shakespeare vomit draft. Screenwriters. Um, no, so you do the vomit draft mm-hmm. and you do that in screenplays too? Sometimes it just depends. Like now, because well, with of TV, teleplays, you yeah, can't. You, yeah, you gotta you gotta outline. The, the outline has to go through the network, so there's no vom. There's no vomiting. There's yeah. Although in a weird way, I find and maybe you don't that, that having the outlines, having to do all that work on the outline, so because the network is going to read it, that does enable that when you actually, I think, when you're writing the draft, it has that same freeing thing because you're actually just writing. You're just writing the. The dialogue. You're just writing the fun part. You know what's the difference between your show and my show? As I've, um, what I've just realized that you, we have an advantage over you, which is when I went from writing screenplays, which was an act one that was about 20 pages, an act two that was like 80 pages, and then an act three that was 20 pages. Uh, then when we went to TV, they said, oh, by the way, you're going to have a teaser and five acts. What's that? Well, that's where the commercial breaks go. So you're going to have five pages and then 10 pages and then eight pages. I'm like, you mean I only have to write eight pages and then there's a commercial? Like I, I get a natural break? Because I remember the second acts of movies were always the hardest because you got, you know, you're just trying to build conflict in, but you can't have too much conflict or it's going to take away from the end. And now I get to write these cliffhanger, like giant cliffhangers and then reset it every eight pages. Give me that problem. But you guys are writing a cable show, so you don't have that. No, it's 60 page. I mean, how yeah. long are your pay- drafts? 50. Right. Like some of ours come in at 65. Yeah, we don't, we couldn't, you know, we'll, we'll write a 52, 53, and then we'll be nine minutes over and you got to cut it. Uh, really? Yeah. Nobody likes that too, because that's a day of production basically. Yeah. No, we, we're, we have a more flexible situation. Yeah, we don't. Way. We do not. We have commercials. Um, all right. Just a couple more things. Uh, what are your like favorite parts of what this? What part of this life? interview is going to get edited out? That's None. what I want. What we're going to do the whole thing? Yeah, this is all great. People are going to let you're a really interesting person. Oh my god. Living uh I think, you know, Derek, look, you're somebody who does you've been at the top of a you've written a movie that's done half a billion worldwide. Keep going. Keep going. 
You have three television shows on the air. Yes. And you've written books that, like, Kirkus, I think they might have said Dude, something nice a about. a starred review. I think they might have starred. I almost. wish I had the internet out so I could read you that. I don't remember the final sentence of Kirkus's review for, okay, it said, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. What did it say? I don't remember. <laughs> it was great, though. So how do you think um, in this business, because sometimes one of the sort of disempowering things people think is like, if I want to succeed in this business, I'm going to have to become a worse bastard than the rest of them. Yeah. Like, how do you think you've stayed, uh, like, you know, giving back and being a good person, I know, is important to you. Yeah. And how do you think you retain that thing where people all say about you, I know Derek's a really a great guy. I'm not saying that they say that about Brent. I'm just saying that they say <laughs> that about you. They do. They do. How... What do you think uh, it is that allows you to sort of stay kind, like you know uh, treat people well? I wonder if it's well. I do think. I mean, I just had a great upbringing by my. You know, I had uh, my my mom is a saint and knew how to teach us how to behave. And uh, you know, I went to a Southern Baptist college, and I think that had something to do with manners. My wife obviously taught me a lot about manners. But the other thing is, I think it's like I don't know if you ever watched that show Survivor. I I watched the first. 10 or 12 seasons. Yeah. And, um, I watched the first five. I mean. And the funny thing about Survivor was they, they'd cast like a jerk and a, and a nice person and they'd cast a, you know, an athlete or whatever. And then they'd deprive them of, of food, water, and shelter. And people would come in with a strategy like, I'm a jerk, but I'm going to be nice, right? I'm going to show them that I can be kind and whatever. And after three days of no shelter or food, then the jerk became the jerk again. The whatever became the whatever. And I do think that's... So I don't think Hollywood's any different. I think if you're innately a nice person, that you don't... You can't become something else. And I do think there are jerks in the world and they, you know, if they gravitate towards Hollywood, then the jerkiness comes out even more. But uh, you know what? It's not... And you don't think you have to be it. You no. think you can stay... Uh, like, you can treat people well. Yeah. For sure, there are sharks in the business. I've met more more than my fair share, but I don't think it's as prevalent as everyone thinks. I think there are a lot of really smart people, a lot of really nice people working in Hollywood. I, I wasn't in Hollywood before it was corporatized, you know? Um, so I've heard that it used to be way different in terms of, like, the crazy partiers and the, and the you know, crazy personalities. But now it's Sony. It's universal. It's, uh, you know, whatever. These are all... So, so it's a business and you think it's you can approach business. it like, uh, and just decide you're going to be um, like an honest business person and you can get through it. Well, I think there's more on the other side, you know, like I think there's more like those those producers and executives who used might have used to have been out of control, you know, because they're the megalomaniacs who happen to also have power and money. Now they're actually part of giant corporations and they just can't behave that way. So I don't know. I, I feel like I, I haven't seen it as much as like when I've read about it in Raging Bulls and Easy Writers and that kind of thing. It feels like a slightly kinder yeah, version. Yeah, a slightly. What would you say or what do you think? You know, I had like the first two movies that Dave and I made. One was at the Miramax and the other was New Line. And so we had the tale and we, <laughs> right. we did live right. in a world that was slightly different. Right. That was peopled by real characters. We loved that yeah. because and it was a great... It's a writing subject. It was a great beginning of a career because these were mavericks. You know, mm -hmm. Harvey and Bob Shea were true. And DeLuca, who's still a dear... Right. I love yeah. Mike, who actually successfully made the transition from being part of that cowboy culture to really being a part of sort of responsible right. Hollywood. 
so I sweat blood. So you got to remember, man. I grew up in the music business because my dad was in the music business. Right, I watched all that right. craziness from a very young age, and yeah, I always thought too you could be. A, I would watch and I would see the people who treated my father would take me to meetings when he when I was very young at all different places, and I would watch the crazy people and I would watch like the people who seemed kind-hearted and the kind-hearted people did just fine. Right. Um, and I would see the people who thought they had to make themselves hard in the end only costing themselves sure something. Yeah. But I have watched you, and I I've, I do find it really uh, encouraging that you were no different with this enormous success than you were before this success. And I do think that there must th- that part of that has to be conscious on on your part. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's a it's a weird thing because you're you're. I think as a screenwriter. Coming up in the business as a screenwriter is such a picked upon profession. And it's so hard. It is hard. It's yeah, so hard. it's a hard business. It's you against everyone. And a lot yes. of times it's just you on your side of the table. And literally the director's on the other side of the table with the producers and with the studio. And maybe that, you know, maybe that just hammers into you uh, the thick skin that you have to have. Uh, as opposed to, who knows, if I had come up in 99 and Brant and I directed some hit movie and we were like all the trappings and all of that kind of stuff, we didn't have that. Right. So it enabled you to like kind of, in a weird way, you became who you were before yeah. it all exploded. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think that we would have been the way we are now. Um, well, now you know, no, this will be the next movie about somebody who then has the choice <laughs> to go back and go the other yeah. way. Yeah, they could go the other way. So listen, Derek, man. But how many screenwriters do you know? There's not that many screenwriters that are like that's the thing that i found but they're a showrunner no but showrunners you're a showrunner well, you're I, don't, a I don't know highly them. successful showrunner that and are assholes they're supposed i mean i don't know them i mean i really don't i i will say that's probably been the number one thing that surprised me getting to hollywood and then once we all started finding each other and being friends is like and i say this to people is like most screenwriters are really nice they're really cool they're very fun the megalomaniacs i i don't know them i mean i don't hang out with them I'll tell you who they are when we're off the air. <laughs> uh, Derek Hess, thank you so much for doing this. Your new book, A Different Lie, is out November 15th. I think people should uh, even get a head start and read The Silver Bear in Columbus first. They could also read uh, Dark Men in the Right Hand. And uh, they should be watching all the Chicago shows. Love it. And maybe Rent uh, Wanted. Yes. And if anybody finds Courier... Never. Uh, te- get, Do find not, me on Twitter and then tell look. me how I can watch no. it. And then I'll... Watch we'll it, and then we can runner. live tweet it. There's no such <laughs> thing as runner, runner, never. We'll there is no, feature. there is no such thing. Uh-huh. It's still too, too close, too painful. And uh, Derek, thank you so much. Is for on Twitter me. at Derek Hass. That's I'm on nice. Twitter at Brian Koppelman. Uh, you can email me the moment bk at gmail.com if you have anything you want to say about this show. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. Thank you.